0: And teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Thank In the spirit of honesty, I've got to say it wasn't all bad to, to wear all these hats. I mean, as the minister of education, I could go to myself as the administrator and say, I need $10,000 for literature, and as the administrator, I could say, that sounds great, do it, you know. So the, the, the lines of decision-making during that interim were very, very short and very, very clean, and uh, it, was a, it was a great pleasure to serve the kingdom there. One question you may have is, what are these spots on my face? And my point is that decisions have consequences. Now, you can tell what people think about you by the questions they ask. David, those spots on your face, were you in a fight? No, I wasn't in a fight. Did you fall down the stairs? No, I didn't fall down the stairs. Did your wife slap you? No, that's not it at all. But for 25 years, I played competitive uh, slow-pitch softball in church leagues, and Sometimes I didn't wear a cap, and sometimes I didn't wear sunscreen, and now every year I have to go back to the dermatologist and get little precancerous things frozen off my face, and that's what that is. But decisions have consequences, and you don't always face those consequences immediately. Sometimes those are long-term. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, about decision-making. We make decisions every single day. I mean, what am I going to wear today? What am I going to eat? Am I going to go to Warrior's Heart? Of course, the answer is yes. Uh, you make decisions every day. Some are more consequential than others, and I would say about, you know, maybe just 2 or 3% of the decisions you make in your life are just like life-altering. Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do? Where am I going to live? What church am I going to attend? So we want to talk about some of those big decisions today, not the not the inconsequential. And the um, Mark 10 uh, chapter passage that I have on your listening guide is one of my favorite uh, favorite chapters in terms of a guy making a decision. Um, so let's get right into it. I asked Eric what to speak on, what, what to speak about today, and he said about 30 minutes. So what time do they need to be walking out, Eric? We walk out 7:30 we right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Uh, look on the back at the questions, let's begin with the end in mind because there's going to be a point here when I'm going to be through talking and I'm going to say, in your table groupings let's discuss these questions. And they're all past tense, I'm not trying to keep you from talking about what you're facing now and if you feel comfortable doing that, that's absolutely fine. But we're going to talk about blind spots. Everybody has blind spots and that's why it's great for someone to have your back because they can see your blind spots. But What blind spot have you been aware of in the past that really influenced your ability to make decisions? And you've overcome that blind spot and you've gotten help. Second question, how has peer pressure influenced past decisions? People who have influenced you from the outside. Thirdly, what restraints in the past hampered you from making kingdom decisions and you've been able to cast those things off? Uh, I heard uh, Gerald Altick say the number one reason that young people will not volunteer for career missions today is student loan debt. That's a restraint. So there may be a financial restraint. There may be a relational restraint. So that gives you an idea of where we're going with the questions. Let's get into the passage. In Mark 10 beginning in verse 46, uh, then they, that's Jesus and his band of disciples, came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, came to Jesus, What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he, Bartimaeus, received his sight, followed Jesus along the road. Five things I think are really crucial in making kingdom decisions. Number one is to clearly identify the crisis. What is the decision? Oftentimes we walk around in kind of this murk of shadows of Oh, you know, at some point I'm going to have to face this. At some point I'm going to have to do something about this. But we never really put it in the form of a question. Uh, You know, it's the Jeopardy episode of your life. What is the decision that I need to make? And, And oftentimes, you know, kind of like the wedding car with the trail of cans behind it that are rattling and making noise and slowing it down, we have this trail of circumstances around us that are really hampering us from making kingdom decisions. Notice that he had no doubt about his crisis. He was blind. And and just two or three things about blindness. Number one, he was blind by condition. Uh, He was blind by condition. I I had a friend uh, back in in Del City, uh, Oklahoma, who was my EE trainee, uh, by the name of Harry Bossy, B-O-S-S-E. Harry was sighted until he was about 19. He said in a drug-induced state, he drove his car off the top of three overpasses, was in a coma for months, uh, woke up, paralyzed on his left side, totally blind, and, uh, and uh, had slurred speech. So when he showed up and told me he wanted to be trained in door-to-door evangelism, you know, okay, I'll take you, you know, because I wouldn't go put him off on anybody else. And the only condition he asked, I mean, I, I said, you know, we've got all printed materials. He goes, no problem. School for the Blind, you send them the textbook, they'll record it, I'll listen to it back then on cassette tape. I said, there's memory work. He goes, I got nothing else to do. I can memorize. That's not a problem. The one condition he asked is, it was a daytime program, didn't matter to Harry, but it was a daytime program. We ate lunch, went out visiting, and he said, David, the only thing I ask, the only condition, the only uh, uh, thing is, is if I get food on my face at lunch, you have to tell me because I don't know. That tells you a little bit about, I mean, Bartimaeus sat by the roadside begging, dust kicked up by the chariots, dust kicked up by the animals, he was covered in filth. He knew he was blind, but his condition was apparent to everyone else. It was a blind spot for him. So all of us have blind spots. We think the problem is prayer. Actually, First Peter says, men, live with your wives in an understanding way that your prayers not be hindered. We may think, well, my prayer's not getting higher than the ceiling, and God's going... I've got a problem with your marriage relationship. You're not treating your wife right, okay? We may think that the uh, that the problem is finances. Uh, it's credit cards. I can't get those credit cards paid off. But the, the the root problem that we're blind to may be where are we finding our satisfaction in life? You know, I always have to buy something. I have to get the newest iPhone. I have to get the newest whatever. And the problem may not be finances. The problem may be finding satisfaction In Jesus. Uh, The the problem, you say, is this teenager I've got. You know, he turned into the teens and became a monster. Jim Dobson I think one time said, "I, I think there ought to be a law that that you could actually lock them in a cage when they turn 13. And then he said, have a food slot and a water slot. And then he said when they turn 16 and get a driver's license, you can actually throw the key away. So, I mean, the problem you may feel like is the teenager, When when the root problem may be the example that we're leading in front of that teenager. When I was back in Atlanta, uh, many of the, the really heartbreaking stories I found were deacons in the church. They were there every deacons meeting, and yet their kids never went to church. And I was responsible for those kids. I was in charge of the newlywed class, and I would go visit them in their homes. And when I began to tease the story out, it was, Dad carried this big black Bible on Sunday morning, but we never opened it during the week. You know, he would pray in front of the deacons, but he never prayed at home. And the things I heard the pastor say, you know, things about alcohol, things about gambling, things about, he said, that that had no relationship to our lives. Church was something you played at on Sunday and made a big show But then during the week, we live the way we wanted to. And there are going to be consequences for those kinds of decisions. So you need to to identify the condition. And as the the book said, find the question behind the question. I'm really concerned about this, but what's the real root spiritual issue here that I have to deal with? Secondly, he was blind to others. Uh, Bartimaeus. There were probably, it's estimated, 50 to 70,000 people that lived in Jericho at that time. But as far as Bartimaeus was concerned, he was the only person because he couldn't see anybody else. I was talking to Bob and Dee Dee Matthews last night. Uh, We had a challenge in our LBS class Sunday from a guy from the USSR, Nikolai Revtov. Back in the day, he has four PhDs in metallurgy. He's an engineer. I got tickled, Eric, he, he got up to do this presentation and he couldn't get the laptop to sync with the screen. You know, you've had that moment, right? And you could hear him muttering under his breath in that thick Soviet accent. He goes, cheap American technology. <laughs> he he used the example, he said, he said in the space program and the missile program in which he was involved, he said the, the Americans we read spent over a million dollars designing an ink pen that could write in space. He goes, Soviets, we use pencil. Well, you know, there's <laughs> different solutions to engineering problems, right? But but Nikolai, you know, gave us a great challenge uh, to, to witness and share our faith. So I was talking to Bob and Dee Dee last night, and she said, you know, it's not a matter of not knowing that I ought to share my faith. It's not a matter of not being concerned and worried that people are going to hell. She said, I, I just don't i don't see them i don't see them one author said that we always view people as scenery machinery or ministry they're they're scenery you know nice nice shirt they're machinery i want a triple grande nonfat latte or their ministry machinery scenery machinery or ministry and as far as Bartimaeus was concerned, he was blind to others. And he said last night, she said, you know, I guess sometimes we just are affected with people blindness. We're, we're so intent about what we've got to do, we're blind to others. The third thing he was blind to, the, the other thing I would say was not blind to his own problem, and that's the one thing that recommends me about Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus knew he was blind. He knew he had to find a solution. Spurgeon commenting on this passage, said he was hopelessly blind without Jesus. And evidently, Bartimaeus was a student of Scripture because he realized that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would cover recover the sight of blind eyes in Isaiah 35. Identifying the crisis is not always as easy as it seems. Sometimes it is a generational problem that we inherit. Sometimes it, it goes over a period of months or even years. The old issue of the frog in the kettle. You know, you put a frog in hot water, he'll hop out, but you put him in cold water and turn heat up under that kettle, uh, he'll literally cook to death without ever jumping out of the hot water. You need to, number one, identify blind spots in your life. There may be symptoms floating out there that you're very aware of, but you've got to very strategically say, what is the question? What is the decision? What is the issue I have to face that's causing this unsettledness or whatever? I was, um, after seven years at a, at a really growing great church in Atlanta, uh, it was pretty obvious to my wife and I that, you know, things, I, I don't know, you just get this unsettled feeling. Uh, you, you all have had it in your jobs. You've had it in different circumstances, and in ministry, you're really trying to say, not what do I want to do, what does God want me to do, and I mean, that should be the case for all of us in whatever job we're in, and and we realized after seven years there that that God probably wanted to move us, and one of the telling things is churches begin to contact us. I mean, for like six years, I, I had a church here and a church there would give me a call, and generally in church work, it's like, do you know anyone that could, and then they describe my job description, you know, and and that's the polite way of saying, are you available? And this time, I had like three different churches within a month. I mean, they wanted to set up interviews. They were really, really choice places. And so my wife and I were going through this whole thing. How, how do we make these, these choices? And so we, we set down some parameters in our life of what would God's will look like if we were to move? How would it affect our son, who was a sophomore in high school, our other son, who was a sixth grader? How would it affect our relationship with our parents, who both lived back in Oklahoma? All of these things, you know, we, we, we set up these parameters, but we understood that a move was on our horizon. We just didn't know where, okay? So we identified the crisis. The second thing was to intercede with intensity. Verse 47, uh, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, I think that's a key phrase there, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David. Son of David was a messianic term, and as far as we can tell in Scripture, this is the first time anyone ever called him the Messiah without him rebuking them. You know, everyone else said, be quiet, don't say anybody, don't tell anyone. Here, he allowed him to do it. Notice that he didn't dwell on what he couldn't do. I mean, here's a blind guy sitting in his own filth on the roadside begging. I mean, how much lower do you get than that? But he didn't, he didn't, uh, he could not see, but he could pray. He knew that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would, would heal blind men's eyes. Uh, He couldn't see, but he could hear, and probably in the gossip, you know, this is before the internet, right, but in the gossip kind of chain along the road, he heard passerbyers talk about this messianic figure, Jesus of Nazareth, notice he called him by name, who had healed other blind men. There was the man at the pool of Siloam. I mean, we've got several illustrations in Scripture of healing the blind. Even when Jesus kind of gave His coming out address in Nazareth, He quoted Isaiah and said what what the Messiah would do. So He could hear. He heard reports of healing. He couldn't see, but He could speak. Notice He couldn't see, but He could hear. He could pray. He could speak, and He spoke with a loud voice. He didn't dwell on what He couldn't do, or what others needed to do for him. He took ownership of the problem and he did what he should at the right time. Many times we're trying to put problems off on somebody else. If you're in a marriage and there's unsettledness, if my wife would just change, things would be better. If my boss would give me a raise, if, if, if my friends would be kinder to me, if my kids would just act right, we're always trying to put the decision off on someone else. You in your prayers interceding need to say, Lord, what is my decision? Now, I use that word intensity there with intentionality. James said, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, I've often wondered about that. Why does God care whether we get fervent? Isn't it just kind of a Bottom line, here's my request. God's faithful. He's, God wants to know that we're in this game, that we're all in this game, that we're feeling the need and we're dependent upon him. Evelyn Christensen wrote a great book called Lord Change Me. It's, it's basically for women. My wife read it, just changed her life. But basically, Evelyn Christensen said, it's not my husband's problem, it's not my mother's problem, it's not my kid's problem, it's not them who need to change. It's me. Lord, change me. And I think that's where the intercession has to go. Um, The third thing is to ignore the crowd. And out of all of these, this may be my favorite part of the the story. Uh, Because it said, many rebuked him. Now, notice that the ones that rebuked him were also the ones later on that said, be of good cheer. The crowd is going to be fickle, and you just need to understand that that you can't depend on them. You can't live life with focus groups. Um, The the same crowd that said, Hosanna, Messiah, entering into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, also said, crucify him. So, the crowd's going to be fickle. Um, Who was in the crowd? Well, there were priests, there were Levites, there were other blind men, there were spectators, there were disciples. He ignored the crowd when they discouraged him, and he ignored the crowd when they encouraged him. He he ignored the crowd. Um, There is a story of a, a pastoral ministry class in seminary where the pastor took a kind of an unusual approach to this point and took the students, these rising preachers, seminarians, he took them to a a, a mortuary, and uh, he had made arrangements with the funeral director, and and they actually went back to a casket that was open, and he gathered these, these seminarians around it, and he said, I want you to tell this guy in the casket how ugly he is. Tell him how much you don't like him really disparage his clothes. And, you know, it took a while to get into this, but pretty soon they, they were hurling insults. And he said, okay, that's enough. He's been insulted enough. He said, now I want you to tell him how he looks like himself. Dear Lord, please, when I'm in my casket, don't let people say, I look like myself. I don't want to feel like that's the way I looked in life, you know. But tell him he looks like himself. Tell him how handsome he is. Brag on him. Tell him what he's accomplished in life. And then he said to these seminarians, tell me, how did that dead man react when you cursed him? And they said, "He, no no reaction, no response. He said, how did he react when you praised him? He said, no response. He said, remember what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Paul says, reckon yourselves dead. Uh, Romans Romans 12, uh, living sacrifice. We've got to be dead to the crowd. Uh, I think we saw a little bit of this in in the past election when the crowd became the media, the crowd became the pundits, the crowd became the political experts. And really, I knew a lot of young people that really bought into that and just felt like, One candidate was just inevitable. It didn't really matter. I mean, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy what the crowd says. Uh, So beware of when the crowd is trying to influence you. Who's in our crowd today? I think we are oftentimes victims of popular entertainment, social media. Uh, One good thing, by the way, about being old is that most of the really stupid stuff I did, I did before the internet was invented. There, there is a, there, there is a, there's a balance here, and let me be very, very honest with you. There's a balance because Proverbs says, in the presence of many counselors, there's wisdom. But I'm saying, ignore the crowd. So you've got a balance, and when you let people speak into your life, make sure they have the same God you do. Make sure they have the same biblical outlook and worldview that you do. Only accept opinions and counsel and advice from wise people by a biblical definition. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's why we meet in groups like this to be able to talk and encourage each other. But don't go on social media and do a monkey survey, you know, uh that 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 you you you're going to decide who you're going to marry or whatever. I mean, it sounds silly, but it seems like that's what what happens today. People I heard a financial advisor one time that just said, remember, no one cares about your money as much as you do. Not your father-in-law, not your financial advisor, not your best friend, not the person who wants you to invest. You've got to be responsible for that money. And I would say you've got to be responsible for your decisions. Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one and they're all different. But at the end of the day, you've got to say, I own this decision. This is something God wants me to do. The fourth thing is to intentionally cast aside restraints. Uh, The cloak was probably the only thing of value that Bartimaeus owned. Uh, The begging bowl perhaps as well. But the cloak sheltered him from the sun. The cloak clothed him in the winter. The cloak probably was his bed on warm nights, a tent on cold nights that was the one thing of value that he could cling on to and say, you know, this is really a part of my identity. This is who I am. This is even necessary for me to live. And so for him to cast that cloak aside is a really symbolic gesture, I think, of realizing I've got one shot at this Messiah thing. I'm, putting, I'm, I'm going all in on Jesus Christ. I'm going to get to him, and he's either going to heal me or he's not but I am not going to trip over this cloak on the way to Him. So you've got to identify what trips you up. You say, I'm going to start a quiet time. Every morning, I'm going to start a quiet What trips you up? I'm, I'm going to really be the loving husband. I'm going to start writing sweet notes to my wife and getting her. What trips you up? I had a guy one time that uh, uh, he had an alcohol problem, and he would come down crying at the, at the altar, and He's a good guy, a faithful guy. Uh, Don, man. And finally, I, I mean, he would, he would go weeks at a time and then fall off the wagon and get drunk, and it was causing all kinds of problems. Finally, I said, Don, tell me what happens when you fall off the wagon. Well, he said, I come home from work on Southeast 59th Street, and, and I pass this bar called, believe it or not, the Blackout Bar. That was the name of it. I passed this bar, and he said, it's a point of strength. And he said, I can pass that five days a week. I can go weeks at a time. But sometimes I'm tired, I'm discouraged, in a moment of weakness, I just turn into the bar, and I fall off the wagon. I said, Don, have you thought about going home by a different route? And it's like, no, I never thought. I always go on Southeast 59th. And I said, why don't you try to go home a different route? Someone said that real repentance is taking steps to avoid the temptation. Real repentance is taking steps to avoid the temptation, and that's that's casting off those those restraints. The last thing in closing um, is to imitate Christ. And, And that sounds almost trite, but it's absolutely the key metric in a decision making I mean what would Jesus do we got the wristbands we got the bumper stickers we got the t-shirts but it's based on a book in his steps by shed that that basically said if I imitated Christ in everything that I did how would my life change imitated him in in my attitudes so notice that he cried out Bartimaeus cried out for the right thing when he had the opportunity he had thought through it enough that he knew what he wanted to ask Jesus. It goes back to identifying the crisis. What decision do you need to make? So he cried out for the right thing. I want to see. A relationship with Jesus shouldn't be this vague association. You don't go to a dentist and sit in his chair and just say, fix something. You say, no, this tooth right here hurts. I need some relief. Go to Jesus with specific requests. He cried out to the right person. Uh, again, son of David, he, he was uh, calling him the Messiah. He knew who he was. He knew who he was going to. And then he cried out at the at the right time. As far as we know by the scriptural account, Jesus never passed that way again. And, and a, a key decision in life is when you've thought through it, you know the decision you need to make, and you seize the opportunity at the right time to pull the trigger when uh, we were in Atlanta going through this whole thing about what what should happen. We gathered our kids together for our family devotion, and, and we just laid it out to them. We said, guys, we feel like God is calling us away from our, our church. We don't know what's going on, but there are three churches. One's in Marietta, one's in Snellville, and one's in Sandy Springs. They're all right here locally, but it would involve a move on our part. It would involve different schools, but there is an unsettledness about us. We still don't have a peace about any one of those three churches, and so we want you to join us in prayer, and they were they were champs. They, they didn't whine and complain, and we don't want to move, and we like our friends. They, they really wanted to seek the Lord's will, and I remember Bonnie, that my wife, that night praying. She said, Lord, we're trying to evaluate three different choices, but maybe you have a fourth choice. And we want to tell you right now, we're open to that. Wherever that is, whatever it costs, we're open to a fourth choice, if that's what you have. And the very next morning, I was sitting at my desk at church, and the chairman of the personnel committee at Houston's First Baptist Church, a guy by the name of Phil Bruce, who now lives in Dallas, called me up on the phone and said, David, our pastor, John Bisagno, is interested in you coming to join our staff. Would you talk? Nine o'clock the next morning, and that began the series of events that brought me to First Baptist, and I've been here 21 years. So, God has a will for you. Your desire is, I mean, you're, you're... In in making decisions, you don't have to figure it all out yourself. You just have to say, Lord, here am I. Let me know. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that challenges us. Thank you for this blind beggar, Bartimaeus. He must have been a character. By pointing him out by name, I'm sure... It was like, you, you've heard of this guy. He's the guy that's a little bit annoying, the guy that stands up in, in church and says glory to God. Now You know Bartimaeus. Well, let me tell you how all this started. Father, help us to have a great legacy with our kids, with our grandkids, that they can say, my dad, my granddad, he made great decisions that have influenced me. We are a chosen gem. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6 30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at Warriorsheart.org. That's Warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.